Welcome to the Toxic Google Podcast, where great minds meet. I'm Lauren, bringing you this episode. Toxic Google brings the world's most influential thinkers, creators, makers, and doers all to one place. Every episode is taken from a video that can be seen at youtube.com slash talks at Google. In honor of Women's History Month, we're bringing you another episode from The Vault. Originally released in March of 2017, this episode features actress Gillian Anderson, best known for her role as Agent Dana Scully on The X-Files, and award-winning writer and journalist Jennifer Nidell, friends for more than a decade. They share with us their roadmap for how to live a meaningful life, a roadmap that they wish they'd had. We, a manifesto for women everywhere, is an uplifting, inspirational, and intensely practical manual for change, providing nine universal principles that offer a path for dealing with life's inevitable emotional and spiritual challenges. It's for anyone who wants to see her own life and the world around her change for the better. By combining tools that are psychological, political, and spiritual, WE takes readers on a life-changing journey. It asks, why are so many of us and our daughters still in the 21st century, locked in depression and addiction, self-criticism, and even self-harm? How much more effective and powerful would we all be if we replaced our current patterns of competition, criticism, and comparison with collaboration, cooperation, and compassion? Moderated by Laura Slabin, here is We, a manifesto for women everywhere. Jillian Anderson and Jennifer Nadell. Before I delve into the book, I wanted to discuss two ideas that I think that this Google audience would find of particular interest, um, and that's uh, women in tech as well as uh, pay equality. So how many people here in the room uh, were fans of Scully in the X-Files? I I, I have to raise my hand uh, (laughs) as well. Uh, And um, how many of you are familiar with the Scully effect? A few, just just a few. So for those that um, have not heard of the Scully effect, um, it's believed that Jillian's character, Scully, who was a medical doctor, an FBI specialist, inspired many young women to pursue careers in science, medicine, and law enforcement, bringing an actual perceptible increase in the number of women in those fields. So that's pretty interesting. And I know we talk a lot uh, here at Google of how do we get more women in tech, what are, what are the, who are the role models, et cetera. And as we, you know, how do we get more diversity and inclusivity? So I think Hollywood as well seems to be having a shakeup uh, right now. And I'm wondering um, what are some of the factors that are helping to bring about that change? And what do you think we can be done to further you know, uh, stimulate change in, in Hollywood or in, in women in tech? Well, it seems like uh, things are being stimulated in Hollywood. You know, when someone like Patricia Arquette makes a statement at the Oscars and uh, Meryl Streep has been very, very vocal about pay equality in that industry. And overall, those are, you know, having women... Uh, very publicly speak out about the fact of it. And, and you all may know of the um, letter that Jennifer Lawrence wrote, um, which was uh, beautifully worded. Um, those things, I think, on the one hand, it keeps the conversation alive, and also it emboldens uh, women to have that conversation. It empowers them to be able to have that conversation for themselves. It's a complicated issue, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm, uh, I don't know what the percentage is of female employees at Google, but um, 
uh, I know in um, in in my industry, it feels like something one actually has very very little control over because at the end of the day, it's up to you know it's it's up to the writers, the casting directors, the producers, the you know, and and as we all know, so often the uh, the roles of females to men not only are minimal, but they end up being women in their 20s when their love interests or their husbands are in their 50s, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a, it's a but, but it is, is a, um, an ongoing uh, and increasingly um, um, uh, talked about conversation that I think that there are some changes in the process of being made, but... And I think all of us can have an influence as well because ultimately Hollywood is giving us what Hollywood thinks we want. So if we start changing what we want, which is part of what this book is about, this book is about really getting to recognize what is intrinsic to us, what are our authentic wants and tastes are, and those that have been imposed and that we've just absorbed without even realizing that we have internalized, you know, the male gaze, we have internalized you know, a very male, typically male way of looking at women. And as we start to shed that, Hollywood needs to make money and wants to make money. So, you know, it's up to us where we decide to put our bottoms on seats. Makes sense. So I want to delve into the book. And uh, it's a very personal and I would say deeply personal book. And I'm going to share a quote with everyone. It says, let us out of darkness from a place where both of us were suicidal and in despair and into a way of life that has meaning and purpose. So sharing that, I'm just curious why you decided to write the book and, and share such uh, personal stories uh, throughout. And um, curious also in like, if you're reticent about sharing those, those vulnerabilities. Good, good questions. I mean, we're, we're quite extreme cases. We like to take things <laughs> to extremes. And, you know, I think both of us have been seekers since our teens. You know, we've been up against the edge of things since then. And so as a result, we have really been obliged. You know, the way that the reason we're still here and able to sit in front of you, you know, reasonably, sometimes articulately, not always, but um, is because of the stuff that we have distilled down and put in this book. You know, that's why we're alive today, um, because we were obliged to really, really seek answers. And, um, you know, and the reason we wanted to put those answers down was I think that it's, it's a gift in a way if you've had no option but to look for answers. But many people live with a level of misery and pain, many women in particular, it just isn't necessary to live with. And, um, you know, if we look at rates of self-harm, Gillian's got a good figure on that, and um, addiction and um, eating disorders and depression amongst women in particular, you know, we have an epidemic. So something is not working despite this amazing, you know, society that we've created for ourselves. Something is going badly wrong. And... Um, you know, so so that was one of the things that we wanted to address. And also, the the, the book is based on um, nine principles, which are essentially tools or um, universal values like honesty and humility and courage and trust and 
Um, but the one of the foundation principles, actually, the first one is honesty, which goes throughout all of the other principles, because unless we can really, really get honest about what's going on for us, where our sorrow is, what the truth of our lives and what works for us is, then it's very difficult to then step out of that and into another solution. And so um, in asking readers to be that honest in their process, it became very important that we too were willing to get um, honest about some of the stuff that's gone on for us. And, you know, it's been interesting the last week because I um, speak in the book about a, a couple things uh, um, that I've gotten honest about. One is um, periods of time where I've suffered from manic, uh, uh, manic massive panic attacks and also um, with my struggles with parenting and how hard I sometimes find parenting. And um, in this uh, last week, a lot of the headlines has been um, uh, Jillian uh, or celebrities with mental health issues. You know, part of what we're trying to do with this book is to talk about them and, and, and the solution, the solution to those things that um, that, that bring up panic and anxiety and uncertainty and fear and the desire to eat six tubs of haagen or uh, spend, you know, 15 hours gaming every afternoon or whatever it is, that is our escape. Um, part of what we talk about in the book are ways that we can start to wean ourselves off those things and do things that bring much more meaning in our lives. And so it's interesting how in being honest about some of the things that I have gone through, it then becomes a negative, you know, there's the negative twist on it, which is part of what we're, we're used to being bombarded by so much negativity when actually it's a means to an end, ultimately, if you look at it that way. Will you share a little bit about how you came up with the nine principles? I'm sure at some point there were maybe more than nine. You <laughs> <laughs> know how you whittled them down? That's a good question. That's a good question. What we found, we, we kind of put everything that we wanted to say, you know, the book really takes the reader on a journey, you know, and it starts off, you know, as Gillian said, with honesty and, and with our relationship with ourselves. And then it finishes with kindness, which is about how we engage with the world at large and how we go about helping to be a part of bringing the changes that need to be brought so that our society is, is more compassionate and, and fairer and more, and more equal. So we kind of put everything down and we just thought, what are the essentials in here? And often they were similar words. You know, we had a long debate about kindness or compassion. You know, what should the ninth principle be? You know, so, so sometimes it was kind of, you know, something that was close but not quite. So we had to pick and choose. But in terms of the nine, they kind of revealed themselves, I well, think. Well, also one of the things we wanted to do was to, um, you know, to use the positive um, side of the principle that we're talking about. So courage, for instance, mm -hmm. is actually really about anger and resentment and the things that we're holding on to that we can't quite seem to let go of and really digging honestly into those things and being courageous enough to look at the things which actually eat away at us on a daily basis. You know, those uh, those little hurts that maybe we haven't let go of or the person that we haven't talked to in a few years or those areas where we end up getting very tightly closed and not wanting to deal with having the courage to then to face them and to get honest with 
what our own part in that dynamic is. And so, um, so courage is actually a lot about resentment, and, and it's uh, the principles are the positive side of um, maybe trickier things to deal with. And uh, one of the things that you recommended in your book, uh, in addition to following the nine principles, uh, was meditation. Um, and I personally continue to hear how wonderful meditation is. I have attempted many times. I have apps on my phone that are supposed to help with meditation. I do yoga. And I still have not personally gotten something to stick. And if you'll just share a little bit about what your personal meditation practices are and any advice uh, for us on how can we find our own? Um, I think that uh, those of us at Google, we're, we're traveling a lot, we're busy, there's a lot going on in our minds, so I think finding that practice would be very helpful. And I think it's so important because so many of us are so identified with our thoughts that we don't realize that that's not who we are. You know, our thoughts are just our thoughts and there is, you know, our true self resides, you know, in a silent place underneath our thoughts. But I, I found meditation impossible for a long period of time because I would go, even at that, that little bit at the end of the yoga class where you're just meant to lie still, that would be torture because I would feel like I was lying with a swarm of angry wasps that were just going to come and sting me if I lay still, which was my thinking, you know, those attack thoughts that we all have. And then, you know, if a friend suggested just try two minutes and I was like, what's the point of two minutes? You know, I'm an extreme person. I like extreme big answers and um and it worked because anyone can find two minutes and you can set it on your phone and it doesn't matter how much pain it is but what that two minutes did was it started a habit you know and meditation is a habit and once you start really small don't stretch beyond where you can and you know we describe in the book we start with suggesting that practice but a lot of the time we have to kind of scrape away and heal a lot of our wounds because otherwise it is torture to sit with ourselves. So, so it's further on in the book that we talk about how to deepen that practice and, and stretch it out to, you know, I do try and do 20 every day. Yeah, me too. Yeah. But I, I, started, um, I started meditating uh, when I was in high school initially and... Um, but also extended it into periods of time when I was drunk. And <laughs> you know, now it's a very different uh, uh, practice that I have. But one of the things that used to drive me insane was if I didn't have the candle, if I didn't have, wasn't facing the right way, if I didn't have the right cushion, if I didn't, then it didn't feel like it was perfect in some way and, and or that the, the experience of the meditation was as deep as, um, as it could have been. And then I was away filming something and, and the only... Uh, a viable place to meditate was on the kitchen floor next to the refrigerator. <laughs> and I had one of the most extraordinary uh, meditation experiences of my life. And, and it was, a, a, you know, purely a gift to show me that I can kind of do it anywhere. I can do it anywhere. I can do it on set. I can do it in hotel rooms. I can do it. I don't need to have all those perfect uh, um, environmental things to uh to have it work for me so and also you know you talked about having it on your phone you know it's, it, it's kind of been co-opted meditation and it's become another thing that we have to do you know have I done my meditation yet you know have I done my exercise and actually it's not about doing it's about being yeah. and um if one's doing it to get an end result then you're kind of shortchanging yourself 
And if you can just trust, you know, so often we need to know what's going to happen. But if you can just trust that process and trust that, you know, those millions of people who've done it for through the centuries know something, um, then it will start to work. I'll find two minutes uh, before going to bed <laughs> this evening. Um, I mentioned that I thought it was an interesting time in, in history right now, and uh, women, I think, are mobilizing uh, more and more with marches, with strikes, uh, etc. And from reading the book and a little bit more about both of your backgrounds, um, it's clear that you are both um, feminists and, I think, strong role models uh, for many women out there. Um, and I'm wondering what your hopes are uh, for the women's movement and, uh, you know, in, in writing this manifesto and et cetera. Well, it's interesting you talked about the timing because two years ago when we started writing it, Gillian had this very strong sense that it should be called a manifesto and everyone was like, women don't want a manifesto. It's too political. It's too dogmatic. No one cares. No one cares. And Gillian just had, I think, because, she, well, for many reasons, but the, that meditation, you know, when you meditate regularly, you... Anyway, you intuit. You have a, she's got a very strong intuition. That's what I'm trying to say about my writing buddy. But um, turns out, two years on, no one is saying, we don't need a manifesto, unfortunately. No one is saying, why have you written a manifesto for women? Unfortunately, it's all too clear that we do need something. And, um, you know, and our hope is, you know, we're all going to need to be resilient. You know, activism is no longer a choice. It's now an essential, all of us who have the capacity and the voice need to show up, particularly for those who are too scared and most at risk. And if we're going to do that, um, we need to develop resilience because just as you can burn out from work, you can burn out from activism. And there's no point going into it if you're driven by your ego because, you know, often there are no quick results. And often it is just about showing up and saying, I care, I believe, I'm here, I'm not going away. And so, uh, sorry, this is very... Um, no. <laughs> anyway, so, so you know, this, this book is really a, a, a blueprint. It's, it's, it's a handbook and it's a manual. And one of the things that we really hope will happen that has already started to happen, it only came out a week ago and we're already, it's very inspiring hearing back that it is happening, is that women will gather together with other women and start circles, you know, the image on the front of the book if we have an image of the book, yes, there, there, um, is, a, um, is a circle. So gathering together with one or more other women and having the conversations that are in the book, doing the work that is in the book. And then you'll see there's a link. You know, the circles, there are three circles linked on the cover and then linking up with other women um, and growing and growing and growing so so I hope that it will be re very relevant and we hope that women will find other women, whether, you know, in the workplace, online, school gates, going into, you know, whatever age, schools, old people's homes, and just starting conversations, forming connections, because whenever two or more women are gathered together, amazing things can happen. Um, do you have any role models? Um <clears throat> today that you look at as we as we think about how to mobilize or who you're having these circles with? Uh, one of the most amazing uh, young women out there today is Malala Yousafzai and how incredibly courageous and articulate she is, you know, standing up for education in schools at the, at the 
cost of quite a lot and in the face of quite a lot in a, in a way that we certainly don't yet anyway have um, that experience in our apparently free countries. And um, as we think about uh, impact, I think a lot of us at Google think about impact at scale because uh, our company is all about reaching people at scale. And I'm, I'm curious if you have any suggestions for those of us here who, who do want to have a larger impact of what you think we can be doing uh, at scale to make, to make a difference. Telling it as it is, not shying away from the truth and providing you know, a platform for other people to organize and to connect. You know, that's, mm. that's one of the things that we've been looking for is, is a way of, you know, women joining together face to face is essential. But, you know, how can we all join up? You know, so many of us wake up at three o'clock in the morning and just that's the moment when we actually want to connect with someone else. Mm. And that's the moment when it's not appropriate most of the time to connect with someone else. Um, so if, you know, yeah, you can come up with a way. <laughs> I'm, I'm <laughs> often up at 3 a.m. So. Yeah, all of us. I've got two answers to this question. One, but my first response was, kind, you know, kindness is contagious. And, um, and we really, really need more kindness in the world today than ever before, I think. And it, and it is contagious, and that can scale up. Um, but also, you know, we, we are interested in creating a community um, of women online as well as in person. And so much of that has to do with, um, with funding and sponsorship and, um, and, and ideas, you know, ideas from people who know how to make that happen to create a safe place for women to communicate and to communicate about things that are um, um, not just important to them and their experience on w w with this book, but also um, communicate you know, in an altruistic way about how they are going out into the world and, and um, showing that the change that they're working on the inside is having impact on the outside. And we say women specifically for the community because, you know, there's a lot of violence against women out there and there's a lot of women who um, experience that on a daily basis and creating a safe place for them to be able to uh, to talk openly and feel like they're not um, uh, getting further abuse is uh, is a really important thing. Yeah, troll, trolls online are yeah. definitely an issue. Oh. Um, so the, the manifesto is obviously a manifesto for women, um, but I'm curious, um, do you think your principles apply equally to men, and, and why is it not a, a, a manifesto for all? Yeah, absolutely, and all the men we know who've read the book love it and say, what about me? And, and the truth is that any man can read this book and get a lot from it. And if you take the cover off, there's a really anonymous um, <laughs> thing. So if you're embarrassed about reading a manifesto for women, you guys, just take the cover off. Um, but yeah, the principles are universal. They apply to everyone. But, you know, for the reasons that Gillian said, you know, we need to start with women. Women do 75% of the work across the globe and 10% of the wages and own 1% of the property. You know, we need to start with us. And also because, you know, a lot of the time as feminists, we're fighting for access to 50% of, of a system that doesn't work. You know, a system that has left us with facing runaway climate change, you know, hate crimes on the rise, depression on the rise, self-harm on the rise, inequality growing, things that we know 
you know, are not okay, and yet our system doesn't fix them, it exacerbates them. So, so part of our hope for the book as well is that it's not just about trying to get 50% of a broken system, it's about a paradigm shift, it's about co-creating a world that works for women and for men, because I think men are as trapped by our existing mm. structures because they're really about power. You know, they're really about units of labor that traditionally have been male, and so no one needed to take account of the fact that they may have responsibilities beyond the workplace. But most men today do, and most men today want to. So, so it's about together saying, you know, as we were saying about Hollywood, you know, we've got to say it in every area, this is not what we want. It doesn't work. Actually, we want equality. Actually, we want fairness. Actually, we will take home less in our pay packets so that we can take care of those who are sick or who aren't able to earn in the way that we are. It's, it's about co-creating a fairer world. One thing you discussed was a, a gratitude practice. I find that much easier than meditation. Um, and I just thought it'd be fun if you would share with us uh, what was in your gratitude practice yesterday. Mm. Um, well, yesterday was a snow day. <laughs> so I had a lot of gratitude yesterday. I had gratitude for pajamas and snow and a hotel room, which sometimes is really nice. And um, um, I mean, most of the time, um, my gratitude has to do with the simplest things. You know, one of the one of the statistics in the book, I believe, if I've got this right, is that if you have a refrigerator, you are uh, richer than seventy five percent of the population. You know, what? so um, grateful for you know a lot. Jennifer? Yeah, I had I had the snow because I love the snow. I've got my son with me, so that's a huge source of gratitude. I found cabs, even though I was told there would be no cabs. I found them, and the drivers were all lovely. And for me, those moments of kindness, those moments of human connection, often, you know, just little things like buying a newspaper, you know, from someone and forming, you know, a human contact, not just throwing the money and taking the goods, but actually connecting. You know, love is all around if, if we're open to it. Um. We have time for, I'm gonna, this will be the last question. Um, what's, what's next for you after, after writing this book? Aside from trying to start a movement, <laughs> um, I'm going to go and write my second novel, maybe even finish my PhD, oh, and I'm making a, a film for the Green Party in the UK. Um, immediately next is actually a big lump of nothing, which I have been asking for for a really long time, and and a series of um, what, on the one hand, might be unfortunate events, have actually turned into fortunate nothingness. And because I've been pretty much either on a plane, on a set, or with my kids for years years and and hearing myself say I've got to slow down I've got to slow down I've got to, I've got to you know um, and and I've been given this this space and time to um, clean out my closet <laughs> <laughs> clean out my purse no I explore my neighborhood you know be uh, but one of the biggest things is actually um, I do a lot of work um, speaking up about human trafficking and modern-day slavery. And one of the things that drives me a little bit crazy is that the 
busyness of my schedule means that I can't necessarily be on the ground or um, be as physically involved as um, as I'd like to be. So that's partly what I'd like to do is to get physically more involved. That sounds like an aggressive and busy nothingness. Is there any 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 part of the uh, any part of the nothingness like sitting on a beach or hiking or sure. <laughs> meditating? I'm sure there will be. I'm sure there will be. I might have to be taught how to do that. <laughs> Um, so I just want to thank both of you for uh, being here with your busy schedule, um, and uh, I hope that we do start a movement. So thank, thank you, you very much. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. If you have any feedback about this or any other episode, we'd love to hear from you. You can visit g.co slash talks at Google slash podcast feedback to leave your comments. To discover more thought-provoking content, you can always find us online at youtube.com slash talks at Google, on our website, google.com slash talks, or via our Twitter handle, at talks at Google. Talk soon!